1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sarah Mayu about her book, Free Justice, a history of the public defender in 20th century America, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Mayu is an associate professor of law at Vanderbilt University. Free Justice explores the rise both in the idea and practice of the public defender throughout the 20th century. More than just a strict legal history of the profession, Dr. Mayu's work looks beyond the confines of the courtroom and law firm to explore how the public defender was representative of changing ideas not just in law, but also American identity. Free justice expand, expands our knowledge of how and why public defenders became ubiquitous as they are today. Dr. Mayu, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: So, I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic and why you decided to study it?
0: Sure. Well, I guess one short version of the answer is that I was in law school, and I did my summer internship the first year of law school at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. And... I didn't know a lot about the public defender other than in a very vague sense, I guess. I knew that they existed, that people had the right to counsel and that some cities had these offices. Uh, So I became very curious about the history once I saw these offices from kind of the inside as a a law student. And um, in a way, this is probably not surprising because my whole life, I've always been very curious about history. So I have always wanted to know how things got to be the way they are, whether it was my school or kind of the United States generally, or kind of any entity that I was interacting with. So I guess it's not that surprising that I then applied this curiosity to the public defender's office.
1: And I think that's always a really good way of getting into history. Um, You know, I think sometimes people who aren't historians just sort of wonder how historians pick the topics that they're into. And they sort of just maybe just throw a dart at a wall and just be like, "Okay, I'm going to research that. And usually there's some sort of connection there.
0: Yes, I think that's true, even if sometimes (laughs) we might not even know exactly what the connection is ourselves. You know, I just explained what I think is the reason. But of course, as historians would tell you, people also do things for reasons they don't always themselves fully understand.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And so going off of, you know, what you were saying that you, you know, you yourself had sort of a vague idea of what a public defender was at the time. Can you explain to our listeners what a public defender was and how that sort of the rise of it sort of mirrors uh, America's own struggle over identity and sort of its origins?
0: Sure. So today, a public defender typically is defined as a an office, um, which might be at the state level. Sometimes it might be at the federal level. Often it's at the city or county local level, but it's some entity that hires lawyers. And what those lawyers do is they then represent uh, criminal defendants who otherwise cannot afford or don't have access to to their own legal counsel. So uh, the book focuses on this type of public defender and in particular on the idea and the institution of the public defender in criminal courts in particular. Criminal defendants are somewhat unique in that they have a federal constitutional right to counsel. um, And so that's what I focus on in the book, although I should say that It's also true that some places have a slightly more expansive view of what public defenders do, or in some places they get involved in some types of civil proceedings, depending on local or state law. But what I focus on in the book are specifically, basically criminal defense attorneys that are provided to people who have been arrested, accused, charged with some criminal offense, and uh, the government then provides them with legal counsel. And so that's part one of your question. Now, part two, uh, as to how this relates to American identity, is something that I only realized as I was researching the book, and that's uh, a theme in the book, certainly, is how lawyers came to conceptualize public defenders as related to American identity, and in particular to um, uh, American identity as a liberal democracy, right? So the, um, public defender originally to, to many lawyers in the early 20th century seemed kind of like a weird idea because they were accustomed to thinking of lawyers as basically private practitioners, kind of part of the market side of things, not part of the government typically with, you know, some minor exceptions, but they basically thought, you know, criminal defense attorneys are the adversaries of the government in criminal proceedings. And so how can the government uh, also provide the defense attorney that seems like it's going to mess up the adversarial balance or like it would undermine the independence of the lawyer, which is something lawyers care a lot about is their professional independence. Um, But over time, what the book traces is that lawyers eventually redefined the public defender as a way of kind of um, fulfilling all of the constitutional rights that have to do with the rights of criminal defendants against the government. And so they kind of... um, Minimize the public part of the public defender, and they kind of played down the fact that this would be, you know, an expansion of government or an expansion of the state, and instead really emphasized the defender side of the equation that these um, lawyers would be defending the rights of the individual against the state. And when it was framed that way, it it sounded to them uh, very consonant with American identity, particularly um, as I trace in the book by the time of the Cold War, when the idea of American identity became very closely intertwined with this image of kind of the individual standing up to the state or um, having a kind of independent um, self and an independent will that was apart from the state, in contrast to a totalitarian regime where the state... You know sought to have total control over the individual,
1: yeah, and I think that's sort of interesting how something that is i don't know almost taken for granted today, I think you know it's almost some almost a trope that you just see you know a public defender in a in a crime show or whatever is one you know something that was not a given but is too you know so intertwined in sort of the formation of American identity over the twentieth century.
0: Yeah, I think it is. It's interesting. It's also I think you have to be a little nuanced about how we talk about this, because I agree that a lot of times we basically take public defenders for granted as kind of these officials that exist in many places as part of the judicial bureaucracy, basically. Right. So so we don't think a lot about how that got to be or where, you know, when they were established, where they came from. Um, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that public defenders today necessarily are very well funded, for example, or very well uh supported, et cetera. So there's a you know, most of the um legal scholarship about public defenders emphasizes all the ways in which these offices are often underfunded, under-resourced. Uh so they're not really appreciated necessarily in that material sense. I think you could argue. But nevertheless, there is this kind of assumption that they exist or that they're that they're there, at least if people need them. And that was what I found interesting about the book was tracing the history of how that came to be. And also this history of debates within the legal profession um, about whether or not public defenders were even a good idea or not, which Today, the legal profession has a lot of debates about specific details of implementation and funding and that kind of thing. But basically, most lawyers today would tell you that the existence of the public defender is a good thing. And the book uh, tries to figure out how that happened, kind of how that consensus was reached within the profession. Um, And to some extent, also within, I think, American culture generally, although, of course, the general public might not have as detailed uh, knowledge or concern with this issue, um, but I definitely think that it's not, um, I didn't, I tried to write a book that was not just about internal debates within the legal profession, but also about how these related to American culture more broadly.
1: And so, speaking about how that consensus forms over time, and you know how the public defender comes to being, one of the things that you look at is sort of you know the very beginnings of this idea in the Progressive Era, and as you say in your book, most of what you're talking about is sort of you know the latter half of taking place in the latter half of the 20th century but the sort of history of the public defender goes much further back than that. And so how are they initially imagined during the progressive era?
0: Sure. So, I started a book in the late 19th century and there was, for example, a woman named Clara Foltz in California who was the first woman who was admitted to the bar in that state and she was one of the first people that developed and advocated for uh, one version of the public defender. Then I also look at some other figures elsewhere in the country. uh, Meyer Goldman, who was a lawyer in New York City, who was a kind of lifelong um, advocate or gadfly, as the organized bar often saw him, who, who was a lifelong kind of proponent of his version of the public defender. There were certainly other people writing about this issue Uh, during the progressive era, so the late 19th, early 20th century, there was a kind of tsunami flood of debate and discussion about all dimensions of law and the courts and the criminal courts in particular as part of the kind of progressive reform moment. And so the public defender was kind of a very small... Side discussion within that larger discussion, but there were certainly a lot of people writing articles about it and, and books and, and advocating for the public defender during the progressive era. But a lot of times their version of the public defender looked very different from what we have today. And, and it in fact looked um, to a lot of lawyers today, looks actually very horrifying and um concerning because. Um, And that wasn't so much true of Clara Foltz. So she had a very um, she had an idea of the public defender that is in some ways actually pretty similar to what we have today, because she envisioned uh, that they would be very adversarial and would, you know, um, kind of embody the classic uh, image of the criminal defense lawyer kind of going into the courtroom and and standing up for the defendant and being very adversarial and kind of putting on a very um dramatic show in the courtroom, for example, to convince the jury of the defendant's side of the case. So that version doesn't sound that different from the kind of um, television or movie ideal of a criminal defense attorney that that people might be familiar with today. But there were other people during the Progressive era that were imagining something quite different when they talked about the public defender. And what they were envisioning was that the public defender would be a public official, which is different from how criminal defense attorneys historically had been thought of, and that once you made defense attorneys public officials, that they would therefore have all of these obligations by virtue of being kind of government employees to collaborate with the prosecutors who were also public officials by that time, typically. So the vision was that the public defender would um, kind of depart from or move away from that sort of classic adversarial uh, courtroom attorney model and would instead develop this more kind of Scientific collaborative model of defense advocacy where they would kind of look at all the evidence and they would share all the evidence with the prosecutor, and the prosecutor would look at the evidence and share it with them in turn. And they would kind of, um, oftentimes, the assumption was that they would be able to come to some resolution or agree whether the defendant was guilty or innocent or what the sentence should be um, without needing to do that in an adversarial way, that it would be kind of a, it would be kind of more like they were working in a scientific laboratory together and kind of um, researching the facts of the case. So that, um, you know, that in a lot of ways is quite different, at least from the ideal of what criminal defense attorneys historically, as well as I think today see as their role. Um, it's certainly true that of course defense attorneys often negotiate with prosecutors about um potential plea bargains and things like that, but they nevertheless see themselves as representing the individual against the state. And they don't really see themselves as having some duty to kind of try to help the state um sort of Do what it's doing more smoothly, typically. So for that reason, when lawyers and legal scholars today look back at these early progressive era proposals for a collaborative public defender um, who would who would kind of see their duty as cooperating with, collaborating with the district attorney, that seems very disturbing or even unethical, I think, to a lot of people that look back at those primary sources. but i think as a you know as a legal historian that's also why they're so interesting because they show that lawyers were really thinking at least some lawyers in the progressive era were thinking kind of outside the bounds of the um kind of adversarial legal culture that typically is associated with american law and legal institutions and i actually don't think we should assume that today's public defenders are in some kind of direct lineage from those progressive era proposals because a lot of those proposals were not adopted at the time or if they were that doesn't mean that actual public defenders you know actually did what these people were writing in scholarly articles that they should do in 1912 or what have you so i think we need to separate out the early discussion of the idea of the public defender From the actual way that it played out over time. But anyway, that's so that's the early progressive era debate, which in a lot of ways was envisioning um, something different from the public defenders that ended up becoming widely adopted later in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of people that would seem, as, as you were saying, completely foreign. Um, and in terms of thinking about things that, you know, certainly don't seem at face value to be, you know, related to the public defender or sort of a part of it, one of the um, other things that you look at after this period is the rise of the idea of a voluntary defender. And what is that entity, and who was the main advocate behind trying to get that model of you know some sort of you know generic public defender out there?
0: Yeah, so what I found is that in several East Coast cities, especially including New York, Boston, Philadelphia, when these early um proposals were made for a public defender the lawyers in those cities often responded by saying we agree that we need to do something in an organized way to provide counsel for criminal defendants, but we don't want it to be a public defender. We want it to be um, more on the model of a private association where lawyers um, will be funded through private funds to then go in and represent criminal defendants who need representation. And so they set up what were called you know, slightly different things, whether it was the Defender Association, which is uh, still in existence in Philadelphia, although under somewhat different form, or the Voluntary Defenders Committee was the name in Boston. In New York, they actually just folded this into the existing Legal Aid Society, which was a private organization that already was in existence to provide legal assistance in certain types of cases. So they created a criminal branch of the Legal Aid Society in New York, which also is still around in in somewhat different form. Um, But basically, the idea was, and this is a very, um, you know, we see this in United States history in many contexts, where the response to some social problem often is we don't want to expand the government or, um, the state, but rather that people decide to try to respond to some social problem or issue or need through private philanthropy, through charity, through professional pro bono service, through the private sector, um, through nonprofit organizations, you know, we might call them today. So it was kind of the, um, The established legal profession, it was kind of their response to the public defender was this um, kind of private alternative. And I wanna emphasize something because as I mentioned, some of these organizations that they started are still around in some form today, but what's very different today is that those organizations typically receive public funding and in some cases, um, basically their budget often is quite dependent upon public funding. And so in that sense today, they're actually more of a public-private hybrid. But the original vision that lawyers had in the 1930s and 40s for these groups was that they should be purely private and that ideally they wouldn't get even public money so that they would be both a private organization, the people who worked there would be employees of a private organization and therefore independent from the state, And also that they would fund themselves purely through charitable donations, through appeals to the public, through appeals to private law firms that might donate uh, kind of on an annual basis to support this endeavor. But that it would all be both at the level of administration and at the level of funding, it would all be totally independent of the state. So that was the voluntary defender model.
1: And I think that's, it's sort of interesting to think about not just how the, you know, the public defender came about in sort of, you know, a linear fashion, but also as you're pointing out at every sort of turn in this book that, you know, at certain points there is pushback to this idea. um, And the voluntary defender is certainly an interesting model of what could have happened.
0: Yeah, and I think what, you know, what did happen um for a period of time and the uh what happened though over time was that they basically uh realized or came to the conclusion that it was not realistic or sustainable to do this relying solely on private funding, and so they became over time more receptive to um, public funding, certainly, but also even some of some places um just kind of switched over totally to a public defender model and um, yeah the hope the hope that that this could be both. Um, that you could somehow provide legal representation to everyone who needed it, but also do it only with private funding proved not to work, basically, because you could either provide legal representation with private funding and therefore not be able to serve that many people because you never had enough funding, or you could try to serve everyone and then you would need some more stable funding source, which which was often the government. So. Um, that limitation of the voluntary defender model was that these organizations were often very um, small scale and had to have kind of criteria of who they did and didn't represent. And that was partly because they had kind of some ideas about who they should and shouldn't represent, but it was also simply just a matter of resources because this um, aspiration that somehow, you could get a lot of private charitable donations for this kind of work just didn't prove to happen.
1: And as you move forward in in time, one of the things that you illustrate is that by the Cold War period, there is a large amount of consensus around the public defender. And so what is sort of changing during this time period uh compared to the earlier periods that we were just talking about towards you know pushing you know the public defender in the minds of most people as being something that should be around and should be implemented to some extent
0: sure, so this piece of the story is a bit complicated, I think because you might expect if you were just kind of coming into this. Um, with a hypothesis before looking at what happened. You might expect, if you knew something about Cold War America, that the Cold War would have been a very hostile climate for something like the public defender, because historians in many contexts have shown that during the Cold War, and particularly the early Cold War, the political climate was so... Uh, committed to this kind of um, militant anti-communism that it really shut down a lot of efforts that were calling for economic justice or expanded government provision for the poor or kind of expanded conceptions of people's rights to um, material assistance and that kind of thing. So anything that that could be painted that anything that could be kind of twisted into sounding anything remotely, like the kind of cartoon idea of communism of the state providing for the people, right. Would have a very hard time during that early cold war moment. And so that's why, um, well, anyway, so that argument um, has been developed in many different contexts of United States history. And actually, even within the legal context (laughs) Government provided legal aid in civil cases like um, you know property disputes or wage and hour disputes or other types of matters that people might have remained very controversial um, for you know partly for this reason and actually is still kind of really debated within the legal profession and so the idea that the public defender, which had long been suspected by some members of the legal profession as both kind of sounding kind of socialist and also as potentially um, infiltrating the state into what should be an independent profession, which is also a concern uh, that, that Americans had about totalitarian regimes is that the professions weren't actually able to do their work independently of the state, right? So it might be kind of surprising that the public defender... Becomes kind of a consensus reform project um, during this time. But what I found was that there was another dimension of Cold War political culture that was very important here, which is the cultural contrast um, between criminal courts and how criminal justice operated in democratic countries and totalitarian or communist. Regimes, and there was this very widespread focus on criminal law as a kind of place where you could draw a lot of conclusions about the character of a political regime. And so, of course, the one symbol of the Soviet Union and of totalitarian regimes generally is that is the show trial and and the notion that law is totally, um, you know, rigged that the courts are simply arms of the state and that any type of judicial proceeding has a predetermined verdict and is just a site for kind of railroading the edities of the regime into prison, uh, often on kind of trumped up charges without a lot of procedural protections or with procedural protections that are kind of empty or hollow because everyone knows, you know, what the outcome is going to be. So with the show trial kind of as the emblem of communism, then the idea that the United States is different in part because the United States has fair trials and democratic trials and trials where The outcome is not predetermined, but the judge is independent and the defendant actually has the right to test the state's case and argue that the state hasn't proven the charges and so on. That becomes very important to, certainly for lawyers, that becomes very important as a kind of emblem of how they think the United States is different from uh, the Soviet Union and other hostile powers during the Cold War. So with that broad context, there's a lot of celebration of the criminal defense attorney and, you know, there's a lot of, um, pop culture from this time period, you know, is revolves around some criminal trial. And so in that context, I think the public defender became it was possible for lawyers to think about the public defender in a in a different way but they still um they didn't fully reach consensus on a lot of these other questions of implementation but the idea of the public defender became something that they they were less frightened by or even kind of were openly promoting by the by really by the late 1950s but certainly by the early 1960s and then in 1963 the supreme court issues this very famous ruling Gideon versus Wainwright which is not actually specifically about public defenders per se because gideon says that criminal defendants have a constitutional right to counsel and so that could be counsel that is provided through you know a pro bono a member of the bar agrees to take a case pro bono or one of these private voluntary defender type organizations that I mentioned right so so the text of Gideon doesn't really tell states anything about how they have to institutionally set this up but it says you have to provide counsel to every criminal defendant in a felony case and The conclusion therefore that the legal professions um, kind of reform minded members and professional organizations quickly reach is that a lot of places are not really gonna be able to satisfy this constitutional right without having some type of a public defender in place. So the public defender became seen as a way to implement the Gideon right around the country. And so in the late 19, in the kind of mid to late 1960s, there was this real effort to establish public defenders in places where there hadn't been public defenders before, or to expand public defenders, or to take some of these existing voluntary defender organizations and Uh, augment the amount of public funding that they were receiving, et cetera. So that's, I think, how the Cold War chapter played out.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, almost like on on a basic level, just the idea that you were saying, the idea that, you know, something like this that is, you know, on its face value, sort of an expansion of government and stuff like that during this time period is actually, you know agreed upon um by a lot of people when it could very well be twisted extremely easily into as you said your words very um aptly this cartoonist version of like communism and socialism
0: yeah and there were some people who um who made these arguments so there was actually a federal judge who i quote who was a kind of like extreme you know very anti-communist generally and but he wrote this article about how the public defender was essentially itself totalitarian because you were how could you have the government on both sides of a criminal case that sounds exactly like a show trial right and um Alabama which filed the state of Alabama filed an amicus brief in the Gideon case and made this similar argument that Um, or kind of a related argument that also sounded in these ideas of anti-communism, which is, uh, how can there be, um, and and to be clear, this wasn't, the Alabama argument wasn't specifically about the public defender, but actually even about the whole idea of a constitutional right to counsel at all, which was, how can it be that anyone has any right to government assistance? (laughs) The whole point of the United States is that, Um, the government has no obligation, people have to provide for themselves through the free market or that kind of thing. But so people were still, you know, you could still find these arguments, but they were increasingly seen as kind of um, cartoonish or, you know, twisted as kind of unsophisticated, because the legal professions, kind of elite members had by this time developed these more nuanced explanations of why the public defender, actually could make sense within um, within the American framework. And so they then, by this time, they kind of looked at these accusations that this was somehow some kind of communist thing as a little bit silly or a little bit cartoonish.
1: Um, one of the things that you look at in the book is, as you mentioned, the case of Gideon and how it sort of changes things, even though it doesn't necessarily create sort of a national mandate for what this whole system is going to look like. There's this sort of popular idea of what it's saying, what it's meaning things should look like. And part of the problem with that, as you talk about, is that to sort of actualize this, there is a Ma- it's a massive undertaking to do sort of, you know, a national system of public defenders. And so, what are some of the issues that come up during this time period with trying to actually do that?
0: Well, yeah, this, uh, you know, I think we still, um, in some sense, people don't need to read my book to see this because they could just look at whatever. The situation is their own is in their own city or state, and I bet they would learn that the public defender uh, system has some um, concerns about funding or workload or um, kind of whether the administrative structure is 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 well set up and that kind of thing. But yeah, even um, immediately after Gideon, it's clear that this is an enormous. Challenge, and that this is going to be an enormous challenge throughout the country and this is actually one place uh, where the book makes a little bit of a um a kind of historiographical intervention that might be of interest to specialists because there there is kind of in um in legal scholarship there's sometimes an a view that by the the Supreme Court doesn't really decide things often that are kind of totally at odds with public opinion or what the states are already doing, so there's sometimes a, an argument that by the time the court decided Gideon, most of the states had already figured this stuff out, and really the court was trying to send a message to kind of a few states in the rural south in particular that were behind and kind of, and needed to kind of get with the program. Um, And it's not entirely, you know, that there's something to that in the sense that it's true that there were states in the South that essentially had very, you know, very little or no infrastructure for indigent defense at this time. Um, But what I found when I went into the archives and, and read the discussions that lawyers were having among themselves right around the time of Gideon and right after Gideon is that basically, Throughout the country, there were a lot of places where lawyers thought, oh, man, this is going to be a massive undertaking because, you know, we might have been doing some, we might have been making some efforts in this direction before, but now it's a constitutional right. So it's um, the consequences if our state fails to comply, might be that the federal courts will start overturning convictions, which is uh something the states are concerned about. The states are concerned that the court is not gonna end with Gideon, but might um, go farther and require counsel in in a wider set of or circumstances. Um, and also just as a kind of symbolic matter, Gideon is seen as this real push to the legal profession that no matter what you were doing before, um, this is a sign that the Supreme Court takes this very seriously, that the states and the legal profession in local communities needs to be taking this seriously as well, and maybe rethinking what they're doing or investing more into this issue. And so there's a lot of, um, for a variety of reasons, a lot of lawyers in a lot of parts of the country Respond to this with concern or with kind of um, a feeling that this needs to be something that they um, look into, whether because they actually care about it, which I think some, you know, I think they some did, but also just um, even if it's just because we don't really care about this, but we're worried the Supreme Court is now going to start overturning criminal convictions in our state. So it, even if only for that reason, it was seen as this signal to look into this issue and and kind of think about what they were doing. So. There were various initiatives, obviously at the local level, but at the national level, one very important effort is spearheaded by the um, National Legal Aid and Defender Association, which is a you know a legal professional organization. But with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is at the time and still today one of the largest philanthropic foundations, um, in the United States, really in the world. And so the Ford foundation was investing huge amounts of money in all kinds of things, both domestically and abroad at this time. But one of the projects that they underwrite is this national defender project, which basically provides seed funding for new public defender initiatives all around the country in the 1960s. Um, but the challenge, of course, is that, um, I, you know, this is often the challenge in, in United States history, is that the political structure of the United States is very complicated. It's this, there's this commitment to federalism and local control and letting the states set things up kind of the way they want, subject to constitutional limitations. But, you know, within that there's a there's this commitment to leaving the states and localities a lot of flexibility and a lot of independence. And that is especially true in the realm of criminal law, which had historically been seen as something that was really um, primarily under local and state control. And so when the Supreme Court then says, this is now a federal constitutional Requirement, And then the legal profession and other entities are issuing their interpretations of what that requirement means or their recommendations for best practices that might go a little above the constitutional floor, but what they're recommending. So there's all kinds of guidance being circulated, but then every state is different in terms of its local um or in terms of it, how does its state legislature work? How does the budgeting work? Every city might have a different budgeting situation or um, it might be that the courts are run by the county. And so now we have to go convince the county to appropriate money for this or to hire someone to do this. So it quickly became, um, it, was, it was a complicated undertaking for different reasons in different places and more complicated in some places than others. So for example, California, actually had a long tradition of public defenders in the counties going back long before Gideon. So it was maybe less of an administrative challenge there, but in any event, every state and every locality had to kind of figure out how all of these ideals, constitutional rulings, professional recommendations, et cetera, how do we now translate that into however our local courts work and what do our local courts call these things? And, um, so (laughs) quickly just kind of, um, the consensus at the level of the ideal did not generate a lot of consistency or clarity at the level, at the local level.
1: And I think one of the things that you, you said right in the beginning of, you know, that a lot of people would be able to just look around at, you know, public defenders today and see what sort of problems were happening at the, you know, very inception of sort of, you know, nationalizing this system after Gideon um, is is really important considering, you know, how relevant this history is to what's going on today.
0: Yeah, I think it is relevant uh, um clearly to what's going on today. Uh I will say that I made the decision to end the book basically in the late 1960s, although I, technically I go a little bit into the 1970s um because obviously the history doesn't end in the 1970s and there's a lot that changes or there's a sense in which the issues are still very similar today in some ways but what also happens in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s and continuing today is that there's this new um well there's there's a massive expansion of the of the prisons uh a massive expansion in just kind of the volume of criminal prosecution around the country which then becomes diagnosed as mass incarceration and then there's the rise of a new movement um well i don't know if i should say it's new because historians have to be careful that that could of course be a whole debate about whether anything is new or whether it's continuing things from before but there's in any event there's the rise of this movement um critiquing mass incarceration and Lawyers in certain ways become involved in that as well. And public defenders certainly um, are kind of involved in that, whether they want, I mean, no matter what, because they're the ones who are day in and day out in the criminal courts dealing with this. So I made the decision that my book ends right, um, really not that long after Gideon, really kind of the first 10 years after Gideon, because I wanted to get the story that far. But I think that I hope that historians and other researchers will continue to look into both the history that I've covered, but also certainly the history that's outside of the scope of my book, because I think there's probably a whole nother interesting history to to write about how public defenders, you know, once they're um, accepted in theory as this As this nation, as this national emblem of democracy and constitutional rights, right, which I think is true by the end of the 1960s, how do they then navigate their actual work day to day, and and how do they um, interact with this discourse about mass incarceration that um, develops later in the 20th century? But I didn't go that far in my book because I thought it would be kind of a well, I don't know I, for a variety of reasons, but I certainly think that the earlier history that I do cover in my book is really important to understanding why the institutional lay of the land looks the way it does, you know, why public defenders um, came to be where they are and, and where they're not, and why they're kind of often funded in these very confusing ways that vary quite a bit from place to place. This legacy, I think, still is important to grapple with today, which is that the legal profession decided to endorse the public defender, but these earlier concerns about the independence of the profession and about not accepting public funding and about kind of um, the legal profession kind of having this conception of itself as very independent from the state and wanting to do things, you know, privately, if at all possible, but if not through these kind of complicated public private partnerships and by working with private philanthropy and professional organizations, as well as with the government, I think that larger tendency still is very prevalent today and didn't go away. Um, you know, it it didn't go away really ever during the time period I cover in the book, but it still hasn't really gone away. And so one caution, I guess, that I would hope the book um, encourages reformers to think about is that today we see very large philanthropic foundations that are still very involved in funding and um, kind of getting involved in criminal justice reform efforts. And I think there are a lot of reasons to maybe question whether if these, you know, these efforts are so important or so central to our conception of um, what it means to live in a democratic country and and to have democratic governance. And I think we need to be at least um, a little bit critical about what the role of private philanthropy or private foundations, private um, even professional organizations should be in those kinds of efforts because um, those private institutions are not as transparent as government. They're not as open to public input often. They might be funding things that we think we agree with, but you don't really know how they're deciding what to fund and what not to fund. So, I think in that sense, the book also might have some broader interest for people involved in criminal justice reform, um, not just on the issue of the public defender, but more generally.
1: And I'm actually, because I think that's a really good place to, to leave off what you were just saying there. I'm just going just gonna to skip over the last question and we'll just sort of wrap up things here.
0: Okay. All
1: right. So, um let's All right. So, we have this great book in front of us right now and I always encourage encourage our listeners to become readers and pick up the book themselves. Once again, it is Free Justice: A History of the Public Defender in 20th Century America by Dr. Sarah Mayu. Um and so we have this in front of us right now, but what can we expect from you in the future what might you be working on right now? And I know this just came out. So if you want to say that I'm taking a well-deserved break, that is completely okay.
0: Well, it's a, it's an interesting question because I do have a new topic that I'm interested in, although I've somewhat been forced to take a little bit of a break or at least go very slowly on that project because of the coronavirus pandemic. So I haven't been able to get into any new archives yet. So um of course it's hard for a historian to really know that much about what they want to research before they can actually get into the archives because you always find things that you didn't know about once you get in there. But um I'm hoping I'll be able to to do that eventually. But the the topic I'm interested in, which um might seem like something of a departure from the public defender, but is still within the umbrella of 20th century legal culture in, and constitutional culture in the United States, is that I've been, um, I'm interested basically in how Catholicism has kind of intersected with constitutional culture in the United States in the 20th century, and particularly Um, what might be called like the Catholic left so Catholic peace movement kind of mobilizations against nuclear weapons and against Vietnam and anti-poverty efforts Um, so that kind of everything under the umbrella of what you might call like the Catholic left so that's what I've been reading about and hope to write about next but that is sort of dependent on how quickly I can actually get into some archives and start digging around.
1: Well, that certainly sounds interesting. And I'm sure once you're able to actually, you know, research and write that book, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you for coming on today.
0: Thank you. It was, um, it was a pleasure.